This morning, I'm going to pick up with the lesson that we had last Sunday regarding strange fire from Leviticus chapter 10 and verses 1 through 11. Uh, last week, we looked at some things that Nadab and Abihu might tell us if they were with us today. The lessons that they learned from their experience with God in Leviticus chapter 10. And uh, this morning, I thought that we would bring that lesson and those points a little closer to home and talk about some modern applications. You know, it's one thing to talk in generalities, and we need to be, you know, concerned with the principles, I think. And if we understand the principles, then we can make the proper applications. But I don't want to leave any, any room for misapplications as far as some of the things. At least I want to fill in some of the blanks that we may have and try to explain and give modern applications to the principles that we established last week so that we can see them all so clearly. Going back to Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3 in just a moment, we're going to look at verses, those verses and again make some points. So I hope that the lesson this morning is beneficial. Appreciate the presence of everyone. We do have visitors with us. Thank you for coming. And uh, we have several who are gone out traveling, apparently, uh, this morning. They are gone, and we do miss you when you're gone. And we appreciate very much uh, those of you who are visiting with us and traveling from other places. Thank you for jo joining us this morning. And we ho do hope that our time together is edifying. Leviticus 10 verse 1 says, Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them. And they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. When we approach God, when we come into his presence to worship him, it should be a period, a point in time in which we are focused on him. To give him the reverence that he deserves. And we cannot reverence him. We cannot demonstrate our reverence for him by disobeying him. The only way that we show reverence for God and the only way that we truly are reverent toward God is to obey what he says. Not what he doesn't say, but what he says. We pointed out last week that Old Testament lessons do have relevance. Had a fella respond to me yesterday on Facebook. He said, yeah, he took these lessons from the Old Testament and tried to, tried to teach you Christians today. Now, this, the lesson next week will probably be we can't use the Old Testament to establish authority for what we do. Of course, he was being, uh, he was just being what he usually, this fellow, what he usually is. He's, he just likes to criticize. And that's all people, some people know how to do. But nevertheless, the New Old Testament is not our standard for authority, that's true. But nevertheless, the principles that are established in it are true. God is still God. He's the same God. He still views sin the same way. He still requires that we reverence Him. That hasn't changed. He's still God. And in fact, as we pointed out last week, there is a sense in which it is more important to reverence God and to obey Him today than it was even then because now we must reverence Him through Christ who died for us. The Hebrew writer makes that very point in Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 26 through 28. If those who transgressed the law of Moses died by the testimony of two or three witnesses, how much worse or sore should be thought worthy of the punishment upon those who transgress Christ, who, who disregard his sacrifice, who trod underfoot the spirit of grace? So uh, we need to understand the seriousness of our worship and our service to God. We pointed out that God means what he says. That's one of the things that Nadab and Abihu would tell us today. God means what he says. And he, his silence does not permit to do what we want to do in every aspect. If God says something, he wants us to do that. He doesn't have to tell us everything not to do, in other words. He did not have to tell Nadab and Abihu, now, 
Get the fire from the altar, but don't get it from over there or over there or over there or over there. He just said, get the fire from the altar. That eliminated everything else. God's silence regarding all these other sources of fire did not allow them to get the fire from those places. And we see that in a lot of other examples in the Old Testament. God must be respected. God's holiness is to be taken seriously. We must take God's holiness seriously. Worship in truth, not just feelings. Must our worship be emotional? Yes. We must worship with enthusiasm and zeal, with compassion and fear, with love and humility. But our worship must be governed by truth. We must do what God says. Nadab and Abihu did not do what God says. And after Leviticus chapter 9, no question that there, there was a lot of emotions flowing that day. But emotions do not discount the necessity of obeying God. Fourthly, grace does not allow disobedience. Grace does not give us a permission slip to sin against God. Grace does not give us the permission to do what we want to do instead of what God says to do. Grace, yes, it exists, and God certainly extended to us His unmerited favor, but His grace must never be taken for granted. And then finally, God was right. Nadab and Abihu would tell us that God was right in what He did in punishing them because they violated His law. Listen, they got what they deserved. God was right in punishing sin. We need to know that God is still right. And the reality is, all who are saved and forgiven by God do not get what they deserve, and there's the grace of God. But if we rebel against His grace and we reject His, His teachings, His authority, His commandments, and think that He's going to be wrong by condemning us, we're just... We're just messed up in our head, I tell you. We're, we're not thinking right. God is just in condemning sin. So that which God has not commanded does not bring glory to God. I think that could be something that we could all get from the lesson last week. So this morning, I want to emphasize this point and then make some applications. Anything not authorized by God to be used in our worship and or our service to God would be the same in principle as the strange fire that Nadab and Abihu offered to God on that fateful day. Anything that God does not authorize, anything that He does not command, anything that He has not told us would be not holy, listen, would not be holy, but rather it would be profane. What's the difference between holy and profane? Holy is that which is of God, from God, for God, that He is commanded, that is of Him, okay? He is holy. Now, profane is when we say, well, you know what, I think God would like this. And then we do what we want to do instead of doing what He tells us to do. When we bring the world into our worship to God, wouldn't that be profane? When we began to incorporate more immorality into worship, certainly that would be. Well, so it would be the case when we brought things, the common things of the world, profane things of the world, and brought them into our worship and service to God. If not, why not? The same principle would be violated. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 25, the Hebrew writer says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. In other words, here again is the comparison, as was made back in Hebrews chapter 10, between those who would reject the teaching of Moses and those today who would reject the teaching of Jesus. Which one's more severe? Which one's more important? I think there's a lesson to be learned. Well, I know there's a lesson to be learned there. The principle of Walking by faith. We say, well, today we walk by faith. Well, they were to walk by faith back then too, right? Hebrews chapter 11. 
And those who walk by faith walk by what God said. Those who walked by sight walk by what they wanted to do. And Hebrews Hebrews makes that point in Hebrews chapter 11. Romans 10 verse 17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. I cannot have faith in something as it being right or good or acceptable to God unless God has said it. Unless God has permitted it. Unless God has authorized it. At least in principle. I cannot know that something is right and good and holy unless God has revealed it. 1 Corinthians 2.10 talks about the revelation. Verse 11 and verse 14. The Holy Spirit has revealed to us in words the things of God. Who can know the mind of God except the Holy Spirit has revealed it? Is the idea. And Paul in that context is talking about what the Holy Spirit had given to him. And what he had then done with that revelation is he had told the Corinthians about it. And in Ephesians chapter 3 verses 3 through 5 the same point is made except there it's applied specifically to his writing. I've written these things so that when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Now that knowledge was not given to him by some man. It was given to him directly from the Holy Spirit. And then he wrote those things down so that when we read we can know. God has revealed everything that he wants from us. You know, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 says that God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 16 and 17, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect or complete, thoroughly equipped unto every, every good work. What is the purpose of Scripture? The purpose of Scripture is to fully reveal to us, make known to us, all that God wants from us. And if we follow what the Lord has revealed to us in Scripture, if we understand that Scripture and we follow that Scripture, then we will be doing everything that God wants us to do. Let me read that again, and I want you to think about what Paul is saying, what the Holy Spirit here is saying regarding that point. All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. Where does Scripture come from? And is profitable for doctrine, that is what we teach, for reproof, that is to prove what we believe, to correct, for correction, to rebuke and to correct, things that are wrong in our life, we can take the scripture and we can find out what's wrong and we can correct that. And for instruction in righteousness, to be taught what is right in the sight of God. That the man of God, and hopefully that's all of us here present this morning, we are children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. We are people who strive to please God Well, notice in verse 17 again that the man of God may be complete. What is scripture for? So that we can be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's what the Bible's for. That's what the scripture is for. In Jude in verse 3, the faith has been once and for all delivered, he says. Walking by faith means we walk by what God has said. Not by what he has not said. Nadab and Abihu did not walk by what God said. They walked by what he had not said. And what was the consequences of that? We are to walk by faith, not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6. Paul tells the Corinthians that they need to learn from them not to think beyond what is written. Paul emphasizes in Galatians 1, 6 through 9 that there's only one gospel and that he had revealed it from, had, had it revealed to him from heaven. And so he is not talking about things of men. He's talking about things of God in the gospel. That's the point. That's a general summary of Galatians chapter 1, 6 through 9. And whether an angel or any other creature teach any other gospel to you than that which we've already preached, let him be accursed. And I I want to go to Matthew chapter 21 and establish this principle even further. 
In Matthew chapter 21, in verses 23 through 27, we have the example of Jesus being questioned regarding his teaching and the things that he is doing. He is questioned and asked, where do you get the authority for what you are doing? By whose authority are you doing these things? Okay, who gave you this authority? The end of verse 23. But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, why did you not believe him? And they were right about that. If John was from heaven, if his message was from heaven, then they should have listened to him. But of course, if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all considered John to be a prophet. So they responded by saying, we do not know. And so Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But I want to emphasize this point. Either John's authority was from heaven or it was, was from men. Jesus acknowledges this point as being valid. Either John was from heaven or he was from men. One of the two. There's only two possibilities. In 1 John 4 and verses 4 through 6, John makes that very same point. And he's, of course, throughout the book of 1 John, he's trying to answer the false teachings of the pre-Gnostics who are being uh, very vocal in his day and spreading false teaching regarding the nature of Jesus Christ and the nature of men. And there were many errors that they were teaching. But verses 4 through 6, this is what John says, You are of God, little children, and you overcome them because... Overcome the false teachers is the idea. You've overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world. And the world hears them. We are of God. He who, he who knows God hears us. He who does not know God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. There is a truth. It is the truth and it is the truth of God. Those who are of God speak that truth. Now, John was an inspired apostle. And through his teaching, these Christians that he's writing to knew the truth. They had been established in the truth. And by that truth, they could discern that these false prophets were false. These false prophets taught of the world. It's either of men or of God. The source of our teaching is from one of the two, those two sources. And I'll say to you, if we're teaching what God says in his word, then we're teaching of God. If we're not, then we're teaching according to the world of men. This principle is seen in several other passages as well. And from the negative perspective, in Matthew 15, verses 1 through 9, Jesus condemned the Jewish leadership because they, as he put it, fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, saying, These men honor me with their mouth and lips, but their heart is far from me. For in vain do they worship him, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. We need to be certain that what we are being taught is found in God's word, that it is indeed from God. If it is not from God, then where is it from? And how do we know if something is of God or not? Old Roberts, old Roberts used to say that God talked to him, told him certain things. And you know, I saw him on television one morning when God appeared to him and told him that he he needed ten million dollars to build his his nice new hospital and stuff. And, and as he was preaching, he held his hand up to his ears and said, "What was that, God? I didn't quite." quite get that oh you want me to give you want me to tell everybody to give me 10 million dollars well, ladies and gentlemen was that from God or was that from Moral Roberts hmm. how do we know whether something is from God or not 
We can find it right here. That's how we can know if it's from God. Anything else is going to fall into the subjective realm. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 6, to learn not to think beyond what is written. Galatians 1 verses 10 through 17, those false prophets that the Judaizing teachers, they did not have authority from God or from the apostles. They were false teachers and they were teaching the doctrines and commandments of men, the philosophies of men, Colossians 2 and verse 8. So walking by faith means we walk by what God has said. Not what he hasn't said. Now let's make some applications of that principle. From heaven. God's word is from heaven. It is his word. And yes, I do believe that it has been preserved. And I don't believe that just because from a circular reasoning perspective. Okay, I believe God is all powerful. Therefore, I believe that God has preserved his word. And his word is preserved because he's all powerful. I also believe that he has preserved his word because of the evidence that we have. All the almost 6,000 manuscript evidences of the New Testament that we have. All of the evidence points to the fact that, yes, we can know what was originally given. We don't have the original manuscripts. That's true. We don't have the autographs. But we have copy after copy after copy. And when you compare all of the copies, it's easy to see what the original was. The more copies that you have the more verifiable the original is. Revealed by the Holy Spirit. God's Word was not from men. It didn't pop into their head to write these things down just because they wanted to. It was divinely inspired. And the Bible, God's Word, gives us all we need. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Okay, of course, from men, men say, well, the Bible can't be trusted. There are a lot of skeptics out there. And they will point to the contradictions or alleged contradictions that they come up with. Of course, if you properly understand, there are no contradictions. None of them can hold up. All you have to do is just find one plausible solution to an apparent contradiction, and the contradiction is averted. But they want to criticize. They want to point out to the differences between transcripts. Again, you can go back and trace the sources and find out what the truth is. And all of the alleged differences amount to less than 1% of the entire New Testament to begin with. When you throw out all of the just scribal errors and those, errors and those things, it comes down to about 1% of the New Testament. We know exactly what those passages are. Or someone says, well, God told me. Oh, no, God didn't tell him anything. God has revealed all truth. John 16, 13. They say, well, the Holy Spirit leads me subjective apart from the Word of God. The Holy Spirit guides me. Yeah, I know that it says in 1 Corinthians 14, 34 that women are not to be speaking publicly in church. They need to be quiet. I know that's what it says. But the Holy Spirit told me that I can do that. Oh, no, 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 no. He's not going to tell you to do something different from what the Word says. The Holy Spirit told me that homosexuality is now accepted. No. No. God didn't change His rule. The Holy Spirit told me that this was okay. How do you know that was the Holy Spirit, first of all? Well, we could go on and on and on with these subjective uh, concepts from men, but we must rely on what God has said. Some specific applications. Baptism. Immersion in water. Where did that come from? Was that from heaven or men? Let's take the baptism of John. Was the baptism of John from heaven or men? This is from heaven. Now it was temporary in its scope, in its application, but it was from heaven. And those who rejected John's baptism, they rejected God. That's what Jesus said. Those who rejected the baptism of John rejected God. Well, what about the baptism of Christ? What about baptism in the name of Jesus Christ, Acts 2.38? What about baptism immersion that was authorized by the apostles beginning in Acts 2? And we see throughout the book of Acts, we see baptism, baptism, baptism. We see it over and over and over again. Acts 8, verses 36 through 39, Philip 
preached Christ to this Ethiopian eunuch. They came to some water and the Ethiopian said, here is water, what hinders me from being baptized? Where did he get that from? Was Philip just telling him some Jewish principle that needed to be complied with? No. He was preaching Christ. This is part of the, part of the Great Commission, right? Mark 16, 15 and 16. Go and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. He who does not believe shall be condemned. Matthew 28 and verse 19. Go baptize all nations. Go to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Where is baptism from? Well, it's from the Lord. Unto the remission of sins. Now, this is what the Apostle Peter said, an inspired apostle says. Baptism, repentance and baptism is unto the remission of sins. The word ice there, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for. From a Greek preposition, ice, it appears in your Bible, in your New Testament, some 1,776 times. That little Greek preposition... All 1,776 times is pointing towards something. It does not mean because of. It does not mean in view of. It means in order to, unto, towards, among. Every single time. Unto the remission of sins as well as Acts 22, 16. Why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized, washing away your sins, calling upon the name of the Lord. Into Christ. Romans 6, the Apostle Paul says, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ, have been baptized into his death. So does Galatians 3, 26 and 27. For ye are the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ, hath put on Christ. We are buried with him in baptism, Colossians 2, 12. And we are raised through the faith, through our faith in the working of God. It's not faith in ourselves. It's faith in God's work and what God does. That is the circumcision of Christ. It's what Christ does. It's without hands. It's what Christ does. He cuts away our sins. But then you have men who say, well, sprinkling is okay. I know the Bible says, baptism, but you know, that's why we transliterated the term instead of translating it. You know, instead of translating it into immersion, we just transliterated baptism and then we'll define it like we want to. We define it like sprinkling or pouring. We'll define it how we like. Of course, uh, the word means what it means. And just as in Acts 8 verses 36 through 39, they both went down into the water and Philip baptized him and they both came up out of the water. Men say, well, baptism is not salvific. Well, I know that baptism in and of itself does not save anybody. I could knock an unbeliever in the head and I could drag him in here off the street and I could dunk him. That's not going to help him. He's not a child of God by faith, is he? No. He's just wet. <laughs> He's just a wet sinner. That's all he is. But a person who believes and submits in his heart to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith yields to his commandment. His faith saves him through his submission to the will of Christ. And baptism, according to the New Testament, is the point in time in which a person becomes a Christian, a child of God, a saved person. Mark 16, 16, Acts 2, 38, Acts 22, 16, Romans 6, 3 through 6, Colossians 2, 12 through 13. Peter, the Apostle Peter himself, men say baptism doesn't save you. The Apostle Peter says, Baptism doth also now save us. Who's right? 1 Peter 3.21. Who's right? They say, well, baptism is not necessary. Is obedience to the Lord not necessary? <laughs> Many people say, no, it's not. They'll say, well, it's an, just an outward sign. It's merely an outward sign of an inward grace. You know what? The Bible never talks about baptism that way. Never. Baptism is the point in which Paul says we are baptized into Christ. And yes, it does picture his death, his burial, and his resurrection. It is the form of doctrine which was to be obeyed in Romans chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. But it's not merely an outward sign of an inward grace. It is an effectual act of faith that has associated with it true spiritual blessing. 
not because it has power in itself. It is through faith and our submission to the will of Christ that receives the power. Just like in the children of Israel marching around the walls of Jericho for seven days. They marched around those walls for seven days and they did that by faith. And at the end, when those walls fell, after the children of Israel did what they were told to do, the Hebrew writer says the walls of Jericho fell by faith. Now, marching in and of itself didn't have anything to do with it. It wasn't their marching. Those walls did not fall by the power of their marching. It fell by the power of their faith or the power of God through their faith. And so the same thing is true with baptism. Their marching was not just an outward sign of an inward grace. It had effectual, uh, it had effectual re repercussions because it was by faith in what God said. Church. God says the church, the Lord's church, belongs to the Lord. He would build it. He purchased it with his own blood. The Bible says the church is the saved. Not just some of the saved, but the saved. Acts 2.47, the Lord added daily to the church those who were being saved. Ephesians 5.23, Jesus is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body, the church. And according to Ephesians 4 and verse 4, there's only one body. Now, when I say there's only one body, I don't mean that there's only one local congregation. I don't mean there's only one denomination. I mean there's only one church. I'm not thinking about the church from a denominational perspective at all. The Bible does not approve of denominations. There are no denominations in the Bible that are approved of. There's only one body of believers. That is the saved. That's the church. And the church follows the Lord, follows the head. If a church, a local group, is not following Jesus Christ, then they are not a church of Christ. They are not a church of the Lord. There is only one church. It is not divided up into a bunch of different groups. The Catholicism... Now, idea, of course, the concept is the Catholic Church, the one, that they believe in the one church. Now, I know they've changed their beliefs over the years regarding that, but now, now they're, you know, accepting anybody and everybody. But the whole concept of Catholicism was one church, universal church. But the problem is the Catholic Church is a universal church that has fallen away from the Lord. That goes all the way back to the third century, beginning, and in the sixth century, when it became, finally became, when the first pope was appointed in Boniface III in 606 A.D., it, they had completely apostatized from the Lord. Protestant denominations are not are not approved of in Scripture. They're not of God; they are of men. Because listen, if you plant the Word of God in a person's heart. What are you going to get? If you only plant the Word of God, what are you going to get? You're only going to get Christians. In order to get a different kind of Christian, whether it be a Presbyterian, a, a, a Catholic, a Presbyterian, a Methodist, whatever, you have to plant something along the lines of what makes them distinct as a group. Denominations are not in Scripture. Or this generic idea of just believe what you want, you know, and we'll accept anybody and everybody. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what you teach. It doesn't matter what you practice. That's not found in Scripture either. We're to submit to the head. Those who, who submit to the head are Christ's church. I'm just going to leave it at that. That's who it is that belongs to Jesus Christ. Those who, who submit to Christ. If you don't submit to Christ, you're not of Him. And the reality is, If we're not following Jesus Christ, we're not of Him either. We must follow His teaching. We must follow what He says, not what we want to do. Worship. Following God's instructions 
Those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. John 4, 24. This principle is seen very clearly in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 3. Those who come near to God must come to Him, recognizing Him, reverencing Him as holy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34, the church in Corinth was coming together, but not for the better, but for the worse. Because they were abusing the Lord's Supper. And they were taking for themselves, each one, their own meal. And the Apostle Paul rebukes them very sharply for that and tells them if they want to eat, they need to eat at home. They were abusing the Lord's Supper and thus their abuse of biblical teaching was making it work. They were coming together, together not for the better, but for the worse. And one of the things that is so common today is worship has been transformed into this mystical, emotional experience instead of submitting to and obeying and following and reverencing God by doing what He says. It has become more of a subjective emotional experience, fabricating pseudo-spiritualism through emotional stimulation. And externalities also are affecting and they're, they're using external things to create this emotional sensation. Now tell me that if I'm wrong about that. Our worship is to be in spirit and in truth. Yes, it must be with the right attitude. But it also must be in accordance with the spiritual reality of the new covenant. Not according to the old covenant, but of the new covenant. The spiritual reality of the new covenant. And in accordance with the truth of God's word. We are to assemble. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. The church in Corinth assembled. They were to assemble. But they were to do the things that God told them to do while they were assembling. They were to assemble on the first day of the week. Or they did assemble on the first day of the week. They were told to assemble. We know that they did it on the first day of the week. So are we. Of course, men say, well, our worship can be however we want, whenever we want, with whoever we want. We can worship on a lake. In fact, I think next Sunday maybe I'll just do that. I'll just skip out on you guys. I'll go fishing next Sunday. How does that sound to y'all? Think that'd be okay? You know, it's okay for some of the members to, to do that, I guess, but not, no, it's not okay for anybody to do that. Uh, we need to be together. That's why the Lord said that we are to assemble together, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Some say to do it on the Sabbath day, like in the Old Covenant. Well, we're not under the Old Covenant anymore. Today is the day, the first day of the week is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And that's when Christians assembled to worship in the New Testament. Or holy days. We set aside, day, man comes up with these certain feast days and festivals, holidays. And they attribute some religious significance to it and they make that a special day. But it's not in the Bible. I'm all for recognizing the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We need to teach it. In fact, a few weeks ago, I, pro I taught a lesson on things pointing to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we need to emphasize that. We need to think about that every single day. But not to set apart some day that the Lord himself did not authorize or set apart. Every first day of the week, we're to come together and observe the Lord's Supper and commemorate his death. And... We're to do that until he comes again. So it's anticipatory in that it looks forward to the resurrection of ourselves and meet the Lord in glory when he comes again. Worship, the Lord's Supper, praying and singing. From men, a mass, or don't worry about the Lord's Supper at all. <laughs> or we'll do it one time a quarter, or maybe once a year. Or praying, praying through Mary or saints or some other relic. Or counting beads. Or playing and entertaining one another. Stimulating one another emotionally through instrumental music. I, I was talking to a fellow years ago 
who was really upset because his church had incorporated drums and electric guitars into their worship. And I said, what, uh, what are you really complaining about? Because they used the piano. Now that was okay, but the drums and electric guitars, not okay. I'll ask him, I said, is that, is that consistent? <laughs> if you're going to approve the, the, the piano, well, the drums are going to be okay too. I mean, whatever opens the door for the one allows everything else. And of course, you know what? If you allow that, then you, everything else that comes on the heels of that, it's just, it's just going to keep pouring in. You know, once you crack that door open, what's going to stop from happening what is now happening throughout those who profess to be followers of Christ today? What we need to realize is when God specifies something to be done, He means for that to be done. We need to learn a lesson from Nadab and Abihu. When God says, sing... What does he want us to do? And when he says, sing, making melody in your heart to the Lord, Ephesians 5, 19, what does he want us to do? And one of the interesting things is that a fellow was telling me this past week on Facebook. He saw my lesson from last week, and he said, well, all you know how to do is preach against instrumental music. Of course, I guess that proves he did not listen to the lesson because I did not say one word about instrumental music last week, did I? But uh, anyway, he made that made that point, and I asked him, I said, where did the instrumental music come from? He said, the churches of Christ. I said, no. I mean, or where did teaching against instrumental music come from? He said, churches of Christ. I said, no. I, I said, where are instruments in the Bible? In the Old Testament? Okay. What about the New Testament? None. But Okay. What about this? What about historically, from the New Testament all the way Till you get to some 600-something A.D., what evidence is there that any church following Jesus Christ ever used an instrument of music? None. Well, was it because they didn't have them? No. They saw it as Judaizing. They saw it as going back to the law. They saw it as adding pagan things into their worship. That's how they viewed it. And they recognized that the Lord said, sing. And I can give you quote after quote, whether it be Justin Martyr or any of the other Church fathers, even the reformers, not a single reformer, not a one, agreed that instrumental music could be used in worship to God. Not a one. Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley, Ulrich Zwingli, not a one. Every one of them was strictly opposed, including Charles Spurgeon, who was one of the greatest Baptist preachers of all time. Charles Spurgeon spoke out vehemently against instrumental music. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, said he had no problem with an organ in the church as long as it was neither seen nor heard. And that was their view. Well, where did they get that from? Are people today just enlightened? Um, got a lot of other things to say about this. When it comes to aid, and this is where people do get confused a little bit. They say, well, a mechanical instrument is an aid to our worship. No, it's an addition. An aid assists. An addition is something else. For example, when it comes to assembling, an aid to our assembly would be a house, a hall, a church building, a tree, something. A place to assemble is necessary. But a place with a cover on it would be much better. The Lord's Supper, plates, cups, table, you know, those are aids. They don't change or they don't alter. They don't affect the worship in one iota. To give collection baskets, fine. Um, or we could pass a hat, don't matter. Preaching, um, Preaching with mics to aid getting the sound out, projectors and chalkboards, things that people can see and visually process the information. That's not adding to the things that are said. That is not adding to the content. The singing, song books, PowerPoints, song leaders, pitching the songs by pitch pipe, as Ashton did this morning, by his phone. What a wonderful invention that is. But that's not adding to what he's doing. Whether it be the time, the 
a.m. or p.m. when we worship, the order in our service, uh, you know, whatever it may be. But when you begin to add things, like instead of just assembling like the New Testament church did, and assembling to edify one another spiritually, and the focus being spiritual, and learning what God's will is, now we have gymnasiums, recreational activities, and all those things. You have social meals instead of the Lord's Supper, even though the Apostle Paul said, if any man eat, let him eat at home. You have raffles and chili suppers and cakewalks instead of each member giving as they have purposed in their heart to the Lord because we have all these other things that we have to pay for, you see, that aren't found in the Scripture. Then you have preaching on politics or binding our opinions or entertaining, getting up here and making everybody laugh and feel good about themselves. That's not what the Lord told us to do. The Lord said, preach the word. Or when it comes to singing, man-made instruments, praise bands, when we become the designers and determiners of how, when, or where we worship, we have diverted our worship away from God and toward ourselves. We no longer reverence Him as holy. God still must be respected. In Exodus 3 and verse 5, when... Moses saw that burning bush. He approached it and the voice from the burning bush says, Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. Man's ways are not God's ways. When we worship God our way, we pollute, listen, we pollute the worship. When we worship God according to what He says, then we reverence and we honor God. That's the principle. I know a lot of people who disagree with the way that modern contemporary worship is being practiced these days. That, that's just not something they, they agree with. They don't like it. I'm talking about people in the denominational world. Because it has developed into, it, it's just, you know, they brought rock and roll in. And they're just getting up there and jamming during a worship service and they're calling that worship. And a lot of people can see the error of that. They can see that they've opened Pandora's box. You know, it's interesting when you compare that to what we find in the Old Testament in Exodus 20, verse 25. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone, for if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. In Acts 17 and verse 25, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. God demands our heart, and he demands a heart that's obedient to him, submitting to his will, to what he says. In Hebrews 12 and verses 28 and 29, just in case someone says, well, that was in the Old Testament. Now we're in the New Testament. We're under grace. Well, we're told in Hebrews 12, verses 28 and 29, for those of us who are under grace, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. And we want to approach God with a cavalier, nonchalant, or even you know, just blasphemous attitude. Much of what's called worship today has no New Testament or historical precedent, diminishes the sense of awe and reverence that should be present when approaching God, and reflects and prompt, promotes a lack of confidence in the power of the gospel itself. The gospel can't draw people, the gospel can't save people, so we have to give the world what they want. That's pragmatism, and it doesn't work. And the reality is, when we fall for that trap, we fall into a self-consuming practice where more and more money is necessary, thus more and more people, thus that means more and more people of the world. So in order to get more and more people of the world, we have to compromise our teaching. We have to change our practice. We have to become worldly in order for the world to like us. And that, my friend, is what's wrong with it all. It reinforces a man-centered, what is... It for me. What does it do for me? How does it make me feel? Ladies and gentlemen, worshiping God is not about us. It's about worshiping God. John 2. 
Jesus, when he comes into the temple in John the second chapter, he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. Now when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the money changers, the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. My friend, what have people done today with modern day so-called worship? The health and wealth preachers on television, what have they done? Those who stress the entertainment, and that's what they're all about. What have they done? The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament is the same God. And if we truly respect, we truly love, we truly trust God, we will do what He tells us to do. If we seek to praise Him as He has spoken, then we know, we know we are right. We know that we're pleasing Him. We know, we need to be exactly like those of the Old Testament. Like Jeremiah, who called for people to the old paths. Thus saith the Lord, stand ye in the way and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk therein and you will find rest for your souls. Sad thing is, and we need to realize this, this is the reality, this is the reaction that we're typically going to get. But they said we will not walk therein. Now that's just the reality of it. But that means that they're accepting and they're going to get what's coming to them but we must walk in the old paths. We must follow the Lord. We need to be a people who are dedicated to following the Lord, to following His pattern, to following His teaching, to examine His Word, to follow it as He has revealed it. Because God is worthy of our time, of our effort, of our sincere obedience to what He says. It's not about us. Strange fire. Very common today. God still means what He says. God still must be respected. Worship still must be in truth, not just in how we feel. God does not tolerate us trampling on His grace, His unmerited favor. God is still right. And He's going to be right to reject all who worship their way instead of His way. God's still going to be right. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to render obedience to the gospel. We cannot ignore God's word and think we will escape his judgment. So if you're here this morning and you want to render obedience to his word, you have that opportunity now. Give him the reverence that is due him. Obey him. While together we stand, while we stand.